We are continuing in our uh, studies on the uh, Gospel of Mark, on the, the good news according to Mark. And uh, we move on now to chapter 12 and verses, the passage um, that we read earlier, 13 to 34, which, just as a reminder, is on page 1017 in the Church Bibles, or 1578. Now, I have a confession to make, and that is that I like uh, to watch programmes like Question Time. And I like to listen, if I get the opportunity, to Prime Minister's questions. And uh, when the Prime Minister is questioned in the House of Commons. And uh, I, I must confess, I had used to like to watch Jeremy Paxman when he questioned people on, uh, on Newsnight. So I do like to see politicians sort of have to squirm in answering questions. And I think probably we're all a little bit like that. We like to see them put in an awkward position so, you know, they don't know what to say. And they try to, well, they usually do. Most times they don't answer the question anyway. They totally avoid it. And we also like to think that we have all the answers, don't we? And uh, we like to think, well, you know, I'd like to ask him that question. I could answer that question. And uh, very often we think we've got all the answers. And uh, we're always convinced that we've got the, the answer that whoever it is that we oppose, the, sorry, the question that whoever it is that we oppose, that they can't answer it. Whether it's the, the JWs when they come knocking on your door, you know, somebody says, ask them about this, they can't answer that one. And so you do, and they come up with an answer because somebody else has already asked them and they've been away and looked up and found a reply. And the same so often with, with politicians. However, when we find ourselves, or myself, in that position of somebody asking me the, if you like, the awkward question, when the boot is on the other foot, we always seem to get caught unawares. As uh, we're in a position, perhaps as the Americans would call, when they throw us a curveball, or being British, you know, when somebody bowls a googly. We don't see coming and we're totally wrong-footed. Because often we fail to see that actually, very often, when people come and they ask us that question, it's not out of a genuine concern, but they're out to get us. They're gunning for us. They know, if you like, our weakness. They're trying to catch us out. Sometimes they may appear to be very sympathetic with our point of view. Then, all of a sudden, wham, they hit us with a loud punch. And we're usually lost for words. Or if we're not lost for words, or we stutter, or very often, in my case, I say totally the wrong thing. I get it totally wrong. And then, I go away. And then about two hours later, I've got the answer. I know that cool answer that I could have given them. But of course, it's too late. We never seem to have 
the smart answer. In our, our passages from Mark this evening, we see Jesus being asked three questions. Not because the people who were asking were seeking to know the truth, but because they thought they were smarter than Jesus and were trying to catch him out, to make him squirm, or even better, to turn the people against him, or even better than that, to get him into trouble with the hated Romans. This follows on from the passage that Steve took a couple of weeks ago when the, uh, the chief priests and the, the leaders had come and had asked Jesus a question and he'd told them, I'd given them a, uh, a parable, the parable of the tenants, and they knew who it was aimed at and they'd gone away uh, a little chastened, but they hadn't given up. And so, in verse 13, we read, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Following the way that Jesus, as we said, had dealt with the uh, chief priests and the teachers and the elders previously uh, with his parable of the tenants, they decided to try a new approach. And they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, these two groups are normally enemies, but they were joining together to try to get rid of Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians. And we read in Mark 3 and verse 6, after, again after Jesus had been confronted them, that the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The pressure to get rid of Jesus was mounting. Now, no one, if they're honest, likes to pay taxes. And especially, as it was in this case, that the tax was to be paid to an occupying power. It wasn't to their own government, it was to an enemy who had taken over and conquered them. And we often talk about the Romans, because they conquered us also. Well, up to Adrian's Wall, anyway. And uh, we talk about the many benefits that they brought to Britain. We've still got the A5 and such things as that. And which they did. Because at that time, we were still running around half naked, painted blue. And there was this army, this sophisticated civilization. But it was an army that didn't put up with any opposition or insurrection. And they were brutal in dealing with it. And the Jews had already experienced this. We read it even in the, in the Gospels. 
They'd experienced it and they would experience it again a few years after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the temple was destroyed. So now these Pharisees and Herodians, the Herodians, by the way, the ones who supported Herod, the king, who was a puppet king and who had been put there by the Romans. And they, sent, they were sent by the chief priests who had questioned Jesus before and come off badly. And they got the question. They believed they'd got him. They'd got that question that would catch him out. They would trap him in his words. The catch 22. He couldn't give the right answer. If he gave one answer, it was wrong for the others. The one that he couldn't win. And they started by trying to give the impression that they were sympathetic towards Jesus. That they consider him a teacher. They say, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And then they hit him with the question. We see that if Jesus answered yes, pay the, it's right to pay the tax, then the people wouldn't be very happy because he was supporting the Romans. If he said no, then he would be guilty of causing insurrection against the Romans. It appears that he cannot win. Can you imagine the scene? But when they came and they said it to Jesus... The tension. How will he answer? How is he going to get out of this one? We've got him. He answered them, first of all, by letting them know that he knew exactly what they were attempting to do to trap him. Now that must have wrong-footed them straight away. He knew their hypocrisy because they didn't believe that he was teaching the way of God in accordance with the truth. If they did, they would be his followers. They were just trying to trap him. And those who were hoping at that time that Jesus the Messiah would start the revolution, that he, the Messiah would be the one to rid them of the hated Romans, were to be disappointed along with those who hoped he would say, yes, pay it. This would turn the people against him. Many people today try to portray Jesus as a revolutionary figure. They try to say that Jesus, if you like, was a revolutionary. Sort of a Che Guevara type figure. And they try to bend him to fit their own political agenda. But Jesus makes it clear here that his kingdom is not of this world. He's not about to rid Israel of the Romans and its Roman rulers. His mission is about far more important things. He came not to release the people from the tyranny of Rome, but from the tyranny of sin 
He explained basically to give to society what is due to society and to give to God what belongs to God. And that is the same today to us. We are to give to society what is due to society, to be model citizens. We bring about social change by spiritual regeneration. Our priority must be the proclamation of the gospel. Society can only be changed when the hearts of people are changed. And that's the work of God. The Apostle Peter uh, wrote in, in his epistle in 1 Peter 2, 13-25, it's entitled Living Godly Lives in a Pagan Society. And that's very much the situation that Christians are always in. That's the situation that Christians are always in. We're living in a... We're aliens in a strange land. He writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We actually, if we're honest, we all have difficulty with putting that into practice. That is not our normal human reaction. It's true that much of what our society enjoys today, the implementation of social care and fairness, have come about over the centuries because 
of the Christian consciousness or the Christian conscience of those in power. But it is a result of the gospel and not a substitute for it. And we must always remember that. The gospel is about the eternal things, about the hearts of people and changing people from within. The gospel is not about social change. Yes, it comes about, but it's through the gospel. It is not a substitute for it. And much damage was done in centuries past by those who thought by force that they could implement the kingdom of God. What we see happening in the Middle East today by ISIS was very often carried out in the Middle Ages by the church. People were given a choice to be baptised or to be killed. And that is not the gospel. That's a totally wrong understanding even of what the gospel is all about. And Jesus refused to be drawn into this conflict that we read about earlier. And he made it clear that we do our duty. We pay our dues. But also that our ultimate allegiance is to God. People are not converted by force or coercion or converted by the implementation of various laws and regulations. People are converted by the Spirit of God at work in their hearts. We see that their expectation of the Messiah was purely seen from a worldly point of view. They were waiting for the Messiah not to bring them closer to God but to rid them of the occupying Romans at that time or to give them power. They they saw the Messiah only from a worldly perspective. But then we read that they were amazed. Not amazed just at the answer that Jesus gave but they were amazed at him. Next we see that the questionings continue. So Jesus is being bombarded. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her, Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, 
Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Have you ever noticed that when people are trying to make a point that they always look for the extreme cases? Whether it's a politician opposing some change in legislation or whether it's the, you know, news headline or whatever. They take an extreme case. You know, they'll talk about uh, benefit and they'll find somebody who they reckon is living in a million pound house and earning and getting, you know, £100,000 in benefit. Or they'll take the other extreme where, if you like, if they want to argue the other way, that they'll look and they'll find a war widow who's struggling on the breadline. We always, or they always look for the extreme case, the extreme example. And we say often that those who do not believe in God make statements about the Bible or about the nature of God that aren't true. They are very good at, if you watch things like Question Time, sometimes they're very good at finding some obscure Old Testament verse to, if you like, prove their argument that this God is unrealistic and doesn't exist. In this question, we see that the Sadducees who didn't even believe in the resurrection. So they didn't even believe in the resurrection, so they come to Jesus with this spurious question. And the Pharisees had already, at this time, they'd already come up with a ruling, because one thing they were very good at doing was taking the laws of Moses and then writing another book on how to implement them. And... uh, the book that I have to implement then is sort of twice the size and runs into many volumes. But they'd already given a ruling on this and they had said that it would be the first husband. So they'd already given the ruling. But because of both of the misunderstandings, that of the Pharisees and also the Sadducees, they had a totally wrong conception of the resurrection. The, t- the Pharisees' were t- teaching was wrong and the Sadducees' teaching was wrong. They were both wrong. So they had this wrong perception of what the resurrection is about. And what they were guilty of is what many people are guilty of today in thinking of the things of eternity in purely earthly or worldly terms. We see this thinking in the cults, with the JWs and the Mormons and the like. We see it in other other religions like Islam, where you know if they're martyred, they're going to, you know, go straight to paradise and be waited on by umpteen beautiful young girls. We saw it over the history, where you know the pharaohs and people they would bury them and they would bury them with some food and some tools for their journey into the afterlife. And Jesus rebukes them for their ignorance because 
as Jews having the word of God they should have known better these people the Sadducees were leaders in Israel they were the rich and the powerful and yet despite that they had a poor understanding of of what God's word says even though they claimed to be diligent followers of the Mosaic law not only in regards to the nature of the resurrection but also to the fact of the resurrection and he does this by going back to the occasion when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush he said I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob note what God said to Moses he said I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob he used the word I am not I was but I am he uses the present tense not the past but this incident is a good example of how we can allow our perception of the present to distort our vision of things eternal and we reduce eternal matters down to our own restricted view of things you know without being unsympathetic we see so often if we open the papers and you see the little verses that people put when somebody passes away and somebody dies and the sentiments there but there's no truth in them because people are thinking of eternity in a worldly way Jesus tells them you are badly mistaken the resurrection isn't a continuance of this life, of this world but we are told there will be a new heaven and a new earth and the old order will be gone all things made new Peter, James and John had a preview of this when they saw Jesus as he really is on the Mount of Transfiguration we don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah they'd never seen Moses and Elijah there was no pictures, no photographs, no paintings so we don't know how they knew but we do know that they were alive they were alive they were not dead and this, ev- this event had a long lasting effect on Peter that in 2 Peter 1 verses 16 to 18 he wrote this for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain for those of us in Christ we look forward to his return and the resurrection and spending all eternity with him again we see that they are looking at things purely from a worldly perspective we do not know what their reaction was to his answer but we see that it was noticed by someone else verses 28 to 34 we read one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating noticing noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer he asked him of all the commandments which is the most important 
the most important one answered Jesus is this Hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength the second is this love your neighbour as yourself there is no commandment greater than these well said teacher the man replied you are right in saying that God is one there is no other but him to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. In, we have another insight to why um, this teacher of the law came and asked Jesus this question in, in Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew in, in chapter 22 verse 34 says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. So the Pharisees still haven't given up. There's been two attempts to catch Jesus out and now they're trying the third one it's amazing how slow we are to learn how slow people are to learn and how arrogant we are with regarding our own wisdom and knowledge and it shows again how their thinking about even the commandments is from a worldly perspective that you can have one commandment over another. You know, so you have a, a pecking order. So, well, you know, like, if I slip on the, keep the top one and I'll make up for it on the others or whatever. You know, that there's some sort of a, a pecking order. They didn't realise or understand that to keep the law, you must keep all of it. It's no good saying, I've kept 9 out of the 10, I've got 90%. It's not a GCSE. The pass mark, the pass mark is 100% in all areas. If we want to keep the law, we've got to keep all of it. Not just part of it, not the bits that suit us, all of it. And Jesus answered him, probably not as he expected him, by saying perhaps the first commandment was the most important, or the second, or whichever. But by condensing the whole of the law into two simple statements. Our responsibility towards God, and our responsibility towards one another. Which is very much how the Ten Commandments pan out. With this answer, the teacher of the law couldn't argue. And his response, for his response, he was commended by Jesus. We've shown in this account what God requires of all of us, of all mankind, that is, he's preeminent in all things, he's number one, and he must come first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That God has to be number one. 
And then, on top of that, we have to love our neighbours ourselves. So do not, we don't only have to love God, but we have to love one another as we love ourselves. Jesus demonstrated this in his teaching. That he called people to leave what they had and follow him. And that was the teaching of Jesus. The second part that we see shows how we should relate to one another. But this is not the gospel. We very often hear this quoted. To love our neighbours ourselves. Being a Christian is to love your neighbour as yourself. But this isn't the gospel. It's a commandment. It's not the gospel. In fact, actually, it's no good news at all. Because I know that I haven't been able to keep those two commandments. And I also know that none of you can either. So it's not good news. It actually condemns us. Because we fail to live up to what God requires of us. That is, that we love him, we obey him, and we love one another as we love ourselves. And we only have to look around the world to see that that doesn't happen. And that's what God requires. It's not outward ritual. As he says, it isn't burnt offerings and sacrifices. It isn't, if you like, about living as you please and then, if you like, in the time of Jesus going along to the temple with your, your sacrifice to have your sins atoned for. It isn't a matter of living as you please and then going along to confession and being absolved. And thinking then everything is okay. When we look at the law, the law is given to show us our need. The law shows us what God requires. It shows us that we need a saviour. And when Jesus tells this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God, what did he mean? He recognised that what was required of him by God, and that all the rituals and sacrifices could not substitute for that all that was now required was that he recognised Jesus as king that he recognised that Jesus was the Messiah and it's a sad situation that many of those who raise objections to Christ or to the gospel even when these are answered they still they still do not believe. It would be better perhaps to say they still will not believe and are not prepared to accept him as Lord. It is the same with us. When we realise what is required of us by God and how we fall below that standard despite whatever our best efforts are or our religious endeavours our good works none of these can substitute 
the, the fact that we cannot live up to God's standard. And we are aware of our total depravity. That we are sinners who need a saviour. And when we come to that point, we are close. We are close. But that isn't all. That in itself is not enough. Not just to recognise that you're a sinner. A lot of people say, oh, I'm a terrible person, I'm a sinner. But they do nothing about it. We have to come to Jesus. And we have to bow the knee, acknowledging that Jesus is King. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Saviour. That Jesus took our sin upon the cross. All of our sin. That is the Gospel. That is our only hope. Not trusting in our vain attempts to please God by our actions or enthusiasms. But by coming to Jesus and trusting in what he has done upon the cross. He was the ultimate sacrifice. Feeling guilty and trying to do better is not the good news. It's not good news because we all know we're just going to fail. The good news that we require when, as we say, the pass rate for God is 100% in all areas. The good news is that even though we have failed and we continue to fail, Christ has achieved for us. All of our failures have been taken by him. All of our sin was put upon him, upon the cross. He died so that we might live. Is it any wonder that after this, no one dared to ask him any more questions? Jesus did not have, did not just have all the answers. Jesus is the answer. Shall we close as we Stand and, and sing again, this time with the prayer, you fed the hungry.